Hello everyone, welcome to History of Asia. Last time we saw how the alliance between Saudi Arabia and the USA came under pressure in the aftermath of 9-11. One obvious reason was that most of the perpetrators of the attacks were subjects of the Saudi king and fans of the national creed Wahhabism. Today we will see why Arabia had become associated with Islamic radicalism. Therefore, I will need to take you back two more decades, to the late 1970s. We also talked about the war in Yemen. At first sight, it started with the Arab Spring and the subsequent toppling of the longtime Yemeni dictator Abdullah Saleh. But, as we saw last episode, that was just the latest phase in a multifaceted conflict that had been going on for decades. Currently, Yemen is torn apart among other things by the Shiite Houthi rebellion in the north and a secessionist movement in the south. Both these movements were already around before Saleh was unseated. Indeed, they had a hand in his fall. Both are in essence about rivalries between different Yemeni re regions, the tribal interior versus the more urban coast. The fact that north and south Yemen don't get along is not so surprising if you realize that as late as the 1980s, they were still two different countries and very dissimilar ones to boot. You had a communist state in the south and a clan-based republic in the north. In today's episode, we'll see how Saleh, the northern leader, managed to unite these two countries. His handling of that fusion will make clear why many southerners want to see it undone. All that and more we will see today. But first, a short word from a friend of the show. Hi, this is J.P. Bristow from the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. Russia is not just the Russians, who make up around 70% of the population of the Russian Federation and were less than half of the Russian Empire. The Empire was born when Ivan the Terrible conquered the non-Russian peoples of the Volga Basin. Tartars, Bashkirs, Chuvash, Mordvins, and others, who still live as distinct cultures in Russia today. The mix of Europe and Asia has periodically led to identity problems. Is Russia European, or is it not? Eurasia might be a bit of a buzzword lately, but it was already trending in Russia 150 years ago, as some historians began to argue that Russia owed as much to Tatars, Mongols and others from the East as it did to Europe. In the Russian Empire History Podcast, we pay equal attention to all the various peoples that made up the Russian Empire. Look at questions of identity, then and now, how Russia differed from overseas empires and how it was similar, and other aspects from its origins in the steppe and forest through to the end of the Russian Empire. Or has it actually ended? Listen to the Russian Empire History Podcast on all good platforms and find out. Abdullah Saleh had a delicious metaphor to describe what ruling Yemen was like. He compared it to dancing on the heads of snakes. What he meant by this was that he was more like a sheikh than a regular president. Mediating, gratifying, occasionally threatening, looking for consensus. This was a matter of necessity, 
since he didn't have the means to impose central authority anyway. It's not hard to imagine this, looking at the current state of his country. What is less obvious, however, is that the position of other rulers on the Arabian Peninsula is hardly more comfortable. While the kings have more means to enforce obedience, they share their power with their relatives, who run day-to-day -day government affairs often. The ministerial councils are very much like family dinners, and like in most families, occasionally there is friction and jealousy. In this case, some princes might fancy themselves on the throne. More delicate still is the balance between internal and external stakeholders. While the USA guarantees the integrity of its borders, Saudi Arabia, above all, has long depended on radical Wahhabi scholars for its legitimacy. The relationship with the USA is strong, but it has rarely been called a formal alliance. Tellingly, there are no treaties with Saudi Arabia like there are with NATO allies. That would provoke a public debate on the matter, which would be embarrassing for both sides. Even now, there are occasional outcries in the West over the bond with Arabian kingdoms. Like over the war in Yemen, for example. What Westerners tend to overlook, however, is that this marriage isn't all that comfortable for the other partner either. Try legitimizing your position by the approval of strict Islamists, while being dependent on unapologetic infidels. And yet, until the late 70s, it all seemed to be going so well. Thanks to rising oil incomes, in a short span of time, the Arabian kingdoms had become rich beyond their wildest dreams. And like a poor man or woman who wins the lottery, Arabian society was changed beyond recognition. There was a catch, though. Winning the lottery can seem like a good thing at first, especially if the winner was poor and now has his basic needs met. But there is more than one known case in which a winner ends up cursing the day he bought that fateful ticket. People start looking at him in another light. Some friends turn into flatterers, trying to take advantage. Others even become enemies. Either because they are disappointed that their friend doesn't do all they think he should, or because they say they don't recognize him anymore. Indeed, money tends to change someone, and not always for the better. In the case of Arabia, not everyone agreed with its lightning speed transformation. With Western consumer items also came a consumer culture that clashed with the traditional views that were prevalent on the peninsula before. There were popular protests against the advent of television, for instance. For the state, this could be a fantastic tool for education or indoctrination. For this reason, however, many Islamic scholars considered it a threat to their position, and they called it an instrument of the devil. They had no lack of dogmatic arguments for demanding a ban. The prophet didn't watch TV, did he? Besides, look at the way that the West adores its celebrities. Is it so far-fetched to see this as a form of idol worship? In the year 1979, this clash of civilizations caused a major emergency. Islamist rebels managed to occupy a large strip of land around the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Using the element of surprise, they even took possession of the great mosque in Mecca. They were only kicked out after much bloodshed and destruction, and all this in the holiest places of Islam 
of which the Saudis considered themselves the protectors. Scholars issued a fatwa that approved the government's use of force, which is in principle forbidden on the spot, but this was of little use. The images of the carnage spoke for themselves. It was a traumatic wake-up call. But it wasn't the only one. That very same year, the Shah of Iran, a long-time ally of the Saudis and of the West, had to flee his country. It was then taken over by Shiite Ayatollahs, whose leader, Ruhollah Khomeini, called for the overthrow of all heretical regimes in Islamic lands, as he called them. At the very top of his list were the Arabian monarchies. He called their form of government incompatible with Islam. As if that were not enough, Khomeini's demands for a restoration of piety resonated throughout the Islamic world, even among Sunnis, but especially among Shiites. And as you know, these are very numerous in the eastern provinces of Hassa in Saudi Arabia. When that region turned to revolt, the Saudis saw their worst fears confirmed. That is where the country's oil is concentrated. So that was nothing short of an existential threat for them. The Saudis held some emergency meetings and they concluded that they had to change their approach drastically. They needed a more devout image. And to that end, they put their newfound oil wells to use. Part of it was spent on developments in Hassa, but that hardly helped to pacify that region. Much more impactful was that they tried to placate the radical Islamists by granting many of their wishes. In many respects, the modernization of the 70s was then turned back. The ulama got to reform and firmly control the media, education and the judiciary. Public life was strictly regulated. Everything that upset their sensitivities was forbidden. Just as importantly, their views would be exported. Funded with oil money, Muslim schools were set up all over the place especially in poor countries where there were few other means of education. And thus, the Wahhabi sect, which had hitherto been mostly confined to the Arabian Peninsula, now spread spectacularly. Nearly everywhere, this would heighten sectarian tensions, for Wahhabis are very dismissive of other forms of Islam, particularly Sufism and Shiism. This friction was made worse by the rivalry with revolutionary Shia Iran. Since then, both regional giants are engaged in a war for the hearts and minds of Muslims worldwide. Until the 70s, Yemeni Shiites and Sunnis used to pray together in the same mosques. Just a few decades later, Yemeni, uh, Yemen was already rife with sectarian hatred. The actions of Wahhabi missionaries contributed to the eventual radicalization of the Shia Houthi movement. In Yemen and in other countries too, the war of propaganda had turned into an armed conflict. But despite all their troubles, the Saudis' plan failed, partly because they couldn't terminate their alliance with the USA. On the contrary, now that they felt threatened by Iran, American protection would become more crucial than ever. But how to reconcile American and Wahhabi interests? That question became ever more urgent now. What unites people? A good story, Yuval Harari and the makers of Game of Thrones would say. Perhaps, but it would have to be freaking genius if such different peoples would have to buy into it. There is something else that always seems to work, however. 
nothing unites people like a common enemy. And later in 1979, still the same year in which the great Moscow was taken and the Shah had fallen, out of nowhere such an enemy presented itself. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. As a communist country and a staunchly atheist one, the USSR made a perfect target for both anti-communist America and for Islamist firebrands in Saudi Arabia. It seemed almost too good to be true, and that's usually a sign that it is. Instead of diverting the Islamists' fury away from the kingdom, the Afghan Jihad made them more assertive still, and the internal policy concessions had pretty much the same effect. It wouldn't be the only miscalculation that they would make. They also made some bad decisions about how to cope with the Iranian threat. They calculated that the fledgling Khomeini regime would be vulnerable in the wake of its Islamic revolution, and so did the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, apparently, for he decided to invade Iran shortly after. The Gulf states, again, saw something that appeared too good to be true. They could get rid of their new nemesis without even dirtying their hands. Saddam would do the dirty work for them, if only he got some help. So they offered him large loans to pay for his war. Once again, it looked like a wonderful solution, but it was anything but wonderful. For not only did the Ayatollah stay firmly in the saddle, Saddam was now left with a ruined economy, further dragged down by the monstrous debts that he'd accumulated with his southern neighbors. And a major humiliation that needed to be erased if he was to forestall uprisings and palace coups at home. What tools did the Iraqi dictator have left to solve these problems? Well, the only thing left in his arsenal was a giant, well-equipped and battle-hardened army. So he was going to use it. He urged the Emir of Kuwait to cancel his debts. And as the mini-state predictably refused, Saddam had his casus belli. In no time, Kuwait was a province of Iraq, which, according to Saddam, it should have been all along. Some people try to explain history as the result of logical decisions by well-informed rational actors, but some periods can just as easily be seen as a series of short-sighted miscalculations. The Arabian monarchies had misjudged the Iraqi dictator, but by invading Kuwait he had made a big mistake himself. The USA could not let it happen. The annexation of the oil-rich mini-state would allow Saddam, an old semi-client of Moscow and by no means trustworthy, to control much of the world's oil supply. Besides, it didn't look like it would stop there. American diplomats were so helpful to show the Saudi king images of suspicious Iraqi troop movements on his own northern border. I can imagine the monarch's face waxing pale as he must have realized that his army would stand no chance against Iraq. For the Saudis, the ironic fate of Kuwait was now looming, to be overrun by an army that they had paid for themselves. What choice did the king have? He agreed to the stationing of a large American force on Saudi territory. That put an end to the threat of an Iraqi invasion. The US would even drive Saddam out of Kuwait, which, gratefully, would thereafter also fall squarely within the American sphere of influence. This is an interesting point, though. Everyone who grew up in the 90s, or who has seen The Big Lebowski, will remember the words of George Bush Sr. 
this will not stand this aggression against Kuwait. But in fact, the Iraqi dictator had summoned the U.S. ambassador beforehand to inquire about Washington's stance regarding his conflict with the small petro-state. There's been a lot of controversy over the exact words that were used and what was the logical way to interpret them. Considering the circumstances, many people, and I think that includes me, would interpret them as asking permission to invade. The response was that America did not have any intentions of getting involved in a dispute between Arabs, nor any security guarantees to Kuwait. The diplomat denies that this amounted to saying, do as you please, we won't get in the way. Now, I won't partake in the blame game, but the least you can say is that it shows just how delicate the work of a diplomat is. Most of it seems inconsequential blah blah blah, but as this episode shows, fates of nations may depend on the reception of just a few short remarks in such a conversation. What if, in this case, the diplomat had warned that, well, if Iraq invades Kuwait, the US will kick them out, which is what happened? What if Saddam had not interpreted her words as a green light? Then, among a host of other things, there are no American troops in Saudi Arabia, most probably, and we may very well not live in a post-9-11 world. Because stationing an army of unbelievers in the House of Islam, that was beyond the pale for many Muslims, and it pushed some radicals into active hostility, and not just against America. The council of leading ulama was forced to sanction this move by the Saudi government, but that only cost them their credibility. Less submissive preachers would fill the void. People like Osama bin Laden came to see the Saudi dynasty as a Yankee puppet now, though that did not stop him from taking money from the family business, which carried out infrastructure prop works on behalf of the American troops. So while for most of the world, the most important date in the 20th century was perhaps 1914, 1945, or 1989, I don't know. For Saudi Arabia, 1979 certainly belongs on that list. And so too for Yemen. As I said earlier, the missionary activities of Iran and Saudi Arabia opened up sectarian divisions there, which contributed, and not a little, to the unraveling of that country. However, the Yemeni conflict is more complicated than that. Older and more fundamental than the religious divide between Shiites and Sunnis was the contrast between North and South Yemen. These were still different countries in the 1980s. The North was tribal, the South communist. Both advocated unification, but by this they meant quite different things. The Southerners wanted to export their socialist revolution while the northern clans wanted to expand their territory. No wonder the two Yemens clashed regularly. And yet, by the early 90s, unification was a fact. How come? The north had long been the weakest of the two. It was controlled by competing hill tribes, among whom Abdullah Saleh eventually emerged as the top dog. Still, he mostly acted as a glorified referee while the sheikhs still did what they wanted on their turf. It wasn't until right before unification that North Yemen became more centralized, mainly as oil production finally got off the ground. The earnings were nothing compared to the bonanza in neighboring countries, but in poverty-stricken Yemen, it was enough to allow Saleh to develop a nationwide patronage system. 
he went on to redistribute tax money between regions, and naturally to the benefit of those places where he had lots of support. Well-connected companies were given monopolies on imports, which was convenient for them, but detrimental for consumers. They were not the government's main concern, though. If they wanted to get anything from it, a simple water pump, for example, they had to apply pressure. But they didn't have many means to do this. They sometimes resorted to kidnappings or small-scale sabotage of pipelines. This, of course, did not trouble Salejo that much. His main policy goal was to stay in power, and to that end, he placed as many relatives in key positions as he could, in the hopes that they would form a loyal elite. It would still be dancing on the heads of snakes, but if the snakes were family, then perhaps they wouldn't bite so quickly, he reckoned. In this regard, I guess that North Yemen came to resemble the kingdoms of Arabia a bit. This system was of course far from stable, but it would nevertheless be rolled out in South Yemen after unification, because the North was the dominant partner in the upcoming merger. There was one reason, and one reason only for this. Conditions in the South were even worse. If in this merger the North was like a dysfunctional family firm, then the South was like the worst performing division of a bankrupt conglomerate. Better sent in the consultants. So what was the matter with South Yemen? If it were so terrible, how come that it had survived until that point? Well, it had been socialist since the late 60s, a curiosity in the otherwise devout Arab world. For that reason alone, it was a symbolic prize for the USSR, which would cherish it and subsidize it. With the backing of these powerful comrades, the communists of Aden could not only survive, they were determined to spread their Marxist utopia to the monarchies next door. The regime of North Yemen in Sana'a also became a target. But these grandiose ambitions placed too heavy a burden on the poor population. And when in the 80s, the Soviet's mother company was forced to cut costs, it split off its loss-making Yemeni division. Besides, Gorbachev wanted to ease tensions with the West, and their aggressive vassal state was a hindrance in this regard. So South Yemen was left to its own devices. Soon enough, it was fighting for its survival. As it became clear that they now lacked the means of maintaining their modest accomplishments and the backing of Moscow, the radical communists could feel that they lost the support of their people. Their more moderate comrades could sense that too and they grew more assertive as a consequence. Alas, a peaceful transfer of power is a rarity in Yemen. Hostile party factions would literally mow each other down inside the party headquarters. And then the massacre moved onto the streets. Aden was torn apart by factional battles, and at some point even bombed. As the internal conflict spread, the communists disintegrated along regional lines. Many top officials lost their lives in the mayhem, while others fled to North Yemen, and among them was the current president Hadi. South Yemen was a shambles, and the remnants of the regime saw no other option at this point than to seek a merger with a more stable entity. They had only one real option, their old enemy to the north. Just as the south was disintegrating, North Yemen had become more united than it had ever been. What a coincidence, right? 
except that this fortuitous timing was no mere accident. One of the many obstacles to the formation of a strong central government in the north had been the fact that the southerners were constantly undermining it by backing rebel groups. After the implosion of South Yemen, these guerrillas were now on their own. This allowed Saleh to get them under control and consolidate his position. When South Yemen subsequently descended into chaos, he agreed to unify both countries, for under such conditions, there was no doubt that he would be the dominant player. Indeed, 1990, he became the first president of United Yemen. The leader of the South, Al-Bayt, had to content himself with the job of vice president. Saleh also had his eye on the newly discovered oil reserves in the border region. Ironically, the southerners had hoped to profit from the oil production in the north, which they mistakenly believed had a greater future ahead. But slowly, it dawned on them that they themselves probably had the larger energy reserves, and moreover, that the northerners had no intention of sharing the profits fairly. Indeed, North Yemen's parasitic structures were now transplanted to the south, which was probably the main reason why Saleh had been interested in the Union in the first place. The forced imposition of a tribal system came as a shock to re regular southerners who had gotten used to more sophisticated forms of government. It wasn't the only thing that spread south. So did the use of cut, a plant that originated in the northern mountains. In the macho culture of that region, it is known as Yemeni Viagra, something that supposedly made you a real man. These days, 9 out of 10 male Yemenis are supposed to chew it regularly. Farmers prefer growing cats to growing fruit because it's more profitable, but the plant is very thirsty, and it drains the water supply. In the long run, cats may contribute just as much to hunger and thirst in Yemen as the war itself. Ironically, the local groups that seem most determined in banning it are not environmentalists, but terrorists like ACAP. Although the adoption of northern drugs may suggest otherwise, in their hearts and minds, Yemenis still lived in separate countries. That would become painfully clear soon enough. The unification of Yemen was Saleh's finest moment, but then he almost immediately made a serious error of judgment that would have dramatic consequences. And it had to do with the Gulf War. Both Yemens sent masses of guest workers to the oil-rich Gulf states. The money they made was in large part sent home. Their family practically depended on these remittances for survival. But then Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait to the horror of the other Gulf monarchies. Saleh stupidly decided to side with Saddam. He may have had his reasons, perhaps he was betting on an Iraqi victory, but while it didn't impact the war in any significant way, it would have terrible consequences for Yemen. For Saudi Arabia and company were of course not amused. They promptly extradited nearly a million Yemenis, and the USA compounded the misery by announcing a suspension of aid. So unemployment skyrocketed and many Yemenis went hungry. The southerners were already unhappy with the overt self-enrichment of northern Yemeni tribal leaders who now dominated their country. But in a situation of plummeting living standards, well, this became intolerable, and the southern elite chose to act. Saleh had neglected to co-opt them anyway, as they had hoped. Instead, 
Their ranks were thinned by mysterious assassinations, of which the culprits were almost never found. Vice President Albeit came to the conclusion that he'd better return to the South, now that he still could. And with this, he effectively blew up the Union. That was in 1994. But Saleh wasn't going to let his prey get away, now that he had it by the throat. At that moment, it became clear how superficial Yemeni unification had really been. Northern and southern troops would simply retake their positions along previous border lines. Officially, the armies had merged, but in practice, only a few regiments had been exchanged. Now, once hostilities resumed, these lone regiments found themselves surrounded by enemy units, and thus they were doomed. The fight was given a religious legitimation by returning jihad veterans from the Afghan war. In northern propaganda, the southerners, given their communist past, were portrayed as atheists. After they were forced to their knees, Saleh showed little mercy to the rebels. Although their officers were pardoned, they were removed from their posts. Southern soldiers and civil servants were sent home with a fraction of their pay, while northerners took their place. Thus the renewed Union took on the character of an unconcealed occupation. Aden was even sacked by troops that came down from the mountains. Needless to say that all this was not conducive to a sense of national unity. Separatism has therefore always remained very much alive in the South. Now that central authority disappeared, flags of South Yemen once again fly over Aden. Oh, and in case you're wondering why the Southerners aren't cooperating with President Hadi either, who is from the region after all, well, it doesn't help that he was the general leading the suppression of the 1994 secessionist insurrection. As a reward for siding with the Northerners, he was also allowed to replace his former communist rival Al-Bayt as vice president. And to complete the circle, Al-Bayt would support the current revival of the secession movement in Aden. Well, that's it for today. You now know how the Saudis got in the business of exporting radicalism and where the Houthi rebellion and the secessionist movement in South Yemen came from. Next time, we'll travel back to the 70s and see how most of Arabia got so rich so quickly. I'd like to end by telling you something about the podcast. I was checking my statistics the other day and I noticed something encouraging. As of this moment, the estimated number of unique listeners is exactly the same as the number of listeners of each individual episode. So it's just about possible that everyone who listened to one episode liked it enough to check out the other one too. I think I'm gonna take that as a good sign. Now, the fact that this is the case also tells you something about the current size of the audience. If it ran in the thousands, these numbers wouldn't be exactly the same. I'm sure you figured that out already. That's hardly surprising, however, since I haven't done much to promote the podcast at all except exchange a few short promo clips with other history podcasters that I like. Look, I'm really not a social media person, you guys, and probably for the best, for if I were, I wouldn't have time to do my research. And my personal network is of no use either, since my French speak, friends uh, speak Dutch and are not into history anyway. My point is, I need all the help I can get, you guys. And you can help the show grow and encourage me to continue making it, by posting good comments or five-star ratings on podcast sites, Spotify, or iTunes. It takes just a few clicks, and it really helps. But if you just like to listen, that's of course fine too. 
Thank you for everything and talk to you soon. Bye.